Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the water, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. The gospel of the Lord. Praise be to you, Lord Christ. Again, good morning and welcome. Let me pray for us. Father, I do pray that the words of my mouth, the thoughts, and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing to you in these moments. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Congratulations, because we've made it through. Do you know what we've made it through? May. Somebody said it. Not May. May. Simber. Exactly, as it's being called now. May has maybe supplanted December as the busiest time of the year. It certainly did for my family this year. Our middle son graduated from high school, and that comes with so much. All good things for the most part. Two Sundays ago, I wasn't here because we were in Dallas for the lacrosse Final Four State Championship. And then last weekend was graduation. But first, it was lacrosse banquet on Friday, and then prom on Saturday, then the prom after party Saturday night, then Sunday morning senior recognition here, then baccalaureate, then a party at our house for him. And then finally on Monday was graduation, after which was project graduation, where I reffed dodgeball until 1.30 a.m. in the morning. And Tuesday woke up like I had a hangover, even though I had no alcohol the day before. And some of you can relate. Some of you know what it's like. You know what it's like to be very tired even right now, but for mostly good things. Others of you are tired or better yet weary and you're weary from hard things or painful things, dark and very difficult things. And as the spring draws to a close and as summer begins, you're groaning under the weight and the pressure of your life in this world. At some point we all groan, but today marks a new season. It's not summer, but Pentecost, because today is Pentecost Sunday. It's an important day. It's an important day for the Christian faith as any after Easter and Christmas, and one that very uniquely and powerfully addresses the groanings of our lives. And so what is Pentecost's answer to the groanings that we face? Well, two points this morning. First of all, first point, the groanings. I've chosen this word because the Apostle Paul uses it in our epistle reading three different times. We find it read there in Romans chapter eight. And it's an important word for Paul, particularly in this passage. And notice that all three uses of it come in the context of present sufferings. Verse 18 says, Paul says, I don't think that the sufferings of this present time are worthy to be compared with the glory that is to come in the future. 
And the image he has in mind here is of a two-armed scale. So in the ancient marketplace, you figured out what weighed the most and therefore had the most worth with a two-armed scale. So let's say you were trying to buy some spice that cost a certain amount of silver per ounce. Then you put the spice on one side and the silver on the other until they balanced out. And what Paul is saying is that you cannot do that with your present sufferings and future glory because the future glory will, it'll be incomparable, incomparable. It will never balance out just a little bit of your future life. He's speaking to Christians here, just a little bit of your future life as it will be. And as you will be, will always outweigh any of your difficulty or your sadness or your pain or your frustration, or even your anger right now, regardless of what it is. And so can you imagine that? Can you begin to imagine that future glory that he's talking about? And do you any way live like that's true? Because it's the great climactic promise of the Christian faith for Paul right here. He uses the word hope in verses 24 and 25. Hope that God will someday fully and completely remake, remodel, and renew everything. The material world included, our physical bodies, as well as our souls. So everything. And this new world will be so good. And our experience in it's so good that the very worst parts of your life now, they will no longer matter. For Paul, they will no longer have any worth. So do you believe this? When I was beginning high school, I really wanted to weigh a certain amount uh, because of what? Football, of course. And so I ate and I ate and I worked out constantly, but I didn't gain the weight. So at the preseason weigh-in, what did I do? I put fishing weights in the pockets of my athletics pants or shorts. And then I think also in my socks and I got up to the weight that I wanted to be listed at in the fall program. Now, ladies, can you ever imagine doing anything like that? No, but some of you guys are thinking, why did I not think of that? Because you're not as vain as I am. But here's the point, And that is your present sufferings are like that for so many of you. What you've done or what you've endured, they're like these weights that you've put in your pockets and you can't take them out or you won't take them out. It's like the, the pockets are sewn up, but they're not in your pockets. They're in your soul. And you're weighed down by them in every aspect of your life, emotionally, relationally, spiritually, mentally, all the feelings or so many of the feelings that you have, they, they're pulled towards that weight. Your thoughts as well, even the relationships, all of your relationships, that weight, whatever it is, hangs onto those relationships or hangs over that relationship, even your relationship with yourself. And the way you see yourself is through the framework of that weight. And you think, this is who I am. I am this, I, I am a divorcee. I'm someone who's been divorced or I'm the abandoned one, or I'm the one who got sick, or I'm the one who was hurt, or I'm the one who failed or got fired or didn't make the grade, so I didn't get this job. There's a UT professor here of business, uh, and he told me this week that at UT's Macomb School of Business, 25% of the freshman students begin to take antidepressants. That's the pressure. And for some of you, that's how you view yourself right now, through the framework of this weight. And there's no levity in your life. There's very little joy. Everything feels heavy, even little things, because you're so already weighed down. I want you to hear something, and that is that Paul never says your suffering isn't that bad. He never says that here. He doesn't say it elsewhere. The Bible never says that. It never says that pain is illusory or imagined. That's 
Eastern thought. That's Buddhism and other things. The Bible never says pain isn't real. The Bible always just says your future glory, once you experience and know it, it's so great, you'll forget the pain of the past and you'll finally, truly, fully move on then. And if that's true, what that means is that we can begin to move on and move through the pain now, at least in part. And I'll be defined by it or weighed down by that. Now, who doesn't want to have a life like that? Who doesn't want to experience that now? Paul is saying you can, we can, I can. But if we're going to, we have to begin to see life in this world like childbirth. That's what Paul says in verse 22. You see that there? He says, for the Christian, the sufferings of this present time, verse 18, are like the pains of childbirth, verse 22. So all the groanings that he mentions three different times are the groaning of childbirth. And groaning is a very precise word for Paul to use. The root word literally in Greek means narrow. It's the word that Matthew and Luke both use when they speak about Jesus saying, enter by the narrow gate. It's this word that emphasizes pressure and pain from something being compressed and too large for what it's supposed to pass through. I probably should have preached on this passage on Mother's Day, but I didn't. But I, and of course, I've never had a baby, of course, but I have had a kidney stone. And from what I've been told by medical professionals, the pain is comparable. In fact, when I was in the ER, the nurse attending to me with Alyssa standing right there told me she had had both and the kidney stone pain was worse. And I thought that Alyssa was going to put her in the ER after she said it. But if the pain is comparable, then what's the difference between the two? What does a mother receive after childbirth? Something incomparable, something unable to be compared, a child. That's, that's so delightful and wonderful and such a gift that most women who have a child have more than one child because they're willing to face the pain again because the weight or the glory, and you know it's a play on words here for Paul, because the Hebrew word for weight, kavod, or the Hebrew word for glory, kavod, means weightiness or importance. And that's what Paul is saying, that any and all suffering in this present time is like for the Christian, any suffering, any pain, any sadness, any loss, it's all like the groanings of childbirth. And those groanings will end. They will end all the groanings, even creation's groanings. Do you see what he says there? That even creation groans? Paul understands that the physical world is caught up in our sin and our brokenness. So much so that our moral and spiritual rebellion against God has had physical and environmental consequences in the material world. Now that's an entirely different sermon, but notice there's something groaning beyond us. And it's not just creation. It is also verse 26, the Holy Spirit. Because of Pentecost, we don't groan alone as Christians, especially in those times when the hurt and the confusion, it's so great that you don't know what to think. You don't even know what to feel. This is what verse 25 is talking about. When the present sufferings hurt so much, you can't pray because you don't have anything to say to God. And all you can feel is the pain. It's then especially that the spirit prays for you on a level deeper than words could ever capture. And he will do so until all your groanings and even creation's groanings end. That is how close God is to you in all of your pain, suffering, and groaning. And he is so that close because of what we celebrate here today, because of Pentecost. So that's the groanings. But point two, the accusation. Look at our Acts reading. So move up the page on page 11 to our Acts reading. This is the biblical narrative 
That serves as the foundation for everything that Paul says in Romans 8. And this passage, and on this day, Jesus' disciples are changed. Something objective and demonstrative happens to them, and they are very simply put, different afterward. They're different and changed. And what happens, according to verse 4, is that they're filled with the Holy Spirit. But before he fills them, according to verse 2, do you see he fills the entire house that they are in. So first of all, there's a sound that's heard. And Luke describes it like a mighty rushing wind. Mighty, it's probably too weak of a translation. I told you this a couple of years ago when I preached on this passage. Most times it's translated as violent. But the translators probably didn't translate it that way because they didn't want to create negative connotations for us, I imagine. But regardless, the word and the point of the word is power. Very real, objective, transformative power that doesn't come from within, but comes from the outside and upon us. And so it is a power that is felt. Something is heard, and then something is felt, and then something is seen. Fire, Luke says, appears, and he struggles to describe it. He says tongues of fire. So maybe little pieces that are jumping out from a greater fire. And he calls it tongues because probably because of what the fire does to the disciples, which is to make them speak. And so something is heard and then felt and then seen. They see God, the Holy Spirit, fill the house. And then he fills them, each of them, like a house. Each of them becomes a house of God themselves. And then finally they speak. And notice the emphasis that Luke makes throughout the entire description. It's an emphasis upon entirety. In each of the first six verses, he mentions something that that gives us the sense of entirety. Verse one, all the disciples are together. Verse two, the entire house is filled. Verse three, the Holy Spirit rests on each one of them. Verse four, so that all are filled with the Holy Spirit with the result that they speak these languages they've never learned so that verse five, people from every nation hear what they are saying. And he repeats that in verse six, each one hears in his or her own language. So in each of the six verses, the first six, there's this emphasis upon entirety or fullness or completion, which tells us at least two things. One, that this is the reality for anyone who would become a Christian. It's not that you're suddenly going to have this exact experience and speak in unlearned languages in some sort of ecstatic state, but you will be different. You will be different. If you are or become a Christian, you will be changed. Anyone who comes to faith in Christ is indwelt with the Holy Spirit. This is not a unique experience for them. The Holy Spirit is like a violent wind and a burning fire. Wind and fire, as we know, changes anything that it touches. So the Christian life is a changed life. There's no escaping that. One of my good friends from seminary is from the South. And he always had these great little colloquial sayings. And he would always say, I walk the aisle to the hymn just as I am and stayed just like I was, which is kind of funny. And maybe some of you know that sort of experience, but it's not normative. It's not normative for the Christian. This is change is change, especially in what comes out of your mouth, what you speak about and even how you speak. One of the most pervasive moral applications throughout the scripture from the very beginning to the end is the insistence that the people of God will be known by their words, which makes sense because think about it, everyone, and I mean everyone, speaks about what is weightiest in their hearts. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. We could extend that and say, whatever is weightiest in your heart is what you will speak about. And what you or how you speak will conform to the topic that you're speaking about. 
And so the first thing that Christians do on Pentecost after the Holy Spirit fills them is to speak. So it makes sense that that is still the first thing that we're known for. There was an article that came out last week on Barna's website. It's about this survey that they just did. And guess what percentage of our country says that they have a positive opinion of Jesus? Guess what percentage? 71%. It's pretty high. It was a little surprising to me. Maybe they don't have all of the information so that their opinion of Jesus conforms to the reality of who Jesus is, but nonetheless, very positive. Guess what percentage of people in the U.S. who have no faith respect Christianity as a faith? 17%. It's a big difference. And the number one reason that they list for not respecting us or doubting our beliefs, hypocrisy, which is not that surprising, but we need to be reminded of that. And we need to be reminded also that our hypocrisy begins with our mouths. Speech is the first thing that the Holy Spirit comes from when he comes for, when he fills the disciples. And it's arguably the first change he still seeks in us now. And here's the other thing, the other thing that, this emphasis upon entirety tells us. Not only that this is the experience for any and all Christians, but also secondly, that any and all people can become Christians. And that is God's goal. That is what he is after. Any and all people to become Christians. I mentioned that last week we attended my son's public school baccalaureate. It was last Sunday evening and six or seven different religions were each represented there. And afterwards, several people came up to me and I knew this was going to happen. I knew as I was walking out, I was like, I'm going to have so many awkward conversations. And I had several, but what I got asked multiple times was, Tim, why didn't All Saints participate as a sponsor church? Or why didn't you participate in the service? And I probably just should have said, come to church on Sunday. It's Pentecost Sunday. And I'll explain everything to you then. But I thought of that later. So what I did say a couple of times as winsomely as possible is We didn't participate because we don't believe in the main message of the service, which is that all religions are ultimately the same. They believe in the same God, the same means of salvation. They just express it differently. I had to say that because we believe that there are some very real differences and to dismiss or to minimize those differences is to disrespect each of the faiths represented. And one of my good friends who asked me said, well, they're just trying to promote tolerance. And I had to say, and I know him well, So I said, kindly, not really, because tolerance is acknowledging differences and still respecting those who differ from you in their beliefs or their morality. It's not pretending there are no differences. And the point is, is that we can't pretend and live as though there are no differences between Christianity and everything else, because there is, and Pentecost insists upon it insists that the God of the Bible is unique and he wants everyone to come and to believe in Jesus alone as Savior and God and be filled with the Holy Spirit so that they can be significantly changed in every aspect of their life from what they were before him. And so, whomever you are and whatever life that you have led, whatever's happened to you or been true of you, you need to know God wants you. He wants you and he has sent his son and his spirit for you to forgive you and to change you. And that is Pentecost. That is the message. And it will get you mocked and it will get you accused of all sorts of things because it does here in verse 13. What's the accusation in verse 13? They are filled with new wine. True or not true? 
filled with new wine. How do I always like to answer questions like this? Yes, yes, because some people assume that the disciples are drunk, even though it's just 9 a.m., which is the third hour, because Pentecost was a party. Pentecost is the Greek word for 50, and for 50 days after Passover, ancient Jewish farmers from all across Israel would bring small portions of their crops to Jerusalem, and it would literally be the first fruits of their harvest, and they would give it to the priest, and they would do so as a thanksgiving for harvest having begun to praise and to worship God as the Lord of the harvest, Lord over all creation, and then as a way to pray that the rest of the harvest would come in. And so for 50 days, they did that, and it was a big party. They ate and they drank everything that was brought, even new wine. And so some of the folks saw the disciples and they figured that these were some of the party goers who had a little bit too much of the new wine and they were filled with too much of it. And in fact, in some sense, they were. It was just a different sort of wine. What does wine do? It's something from outside of you that you take in. And it can change you and it does change you. It can change your mood. It can change your mind. It can change your body even. It can lighten burdens a little. It can help you laugh. It can help you be less self-conscious, less insecure. It can make you dance. It can make some of you dance a whole lot better, which I saw Friday night at a dance party for a 40th birthday party. It can help you dance. But that's the good side of wine. What's the downside or the problem with wine? And that is because it's, it's a depressant and it dulls or deadens part of your brain. And so the happiness that you feel when you've had too much to drink is from being less aware of reality. And that is not what happens here to the disciples. They are filled with a different sort of wine, the wine of the spirit, and it makes them more aware of reality. The joy we read of here, the utter lack of self-consciousness, the the lack of fear, the courage, the boldness, the strength, the joy, the delight, all of it is them being more aware of reality, more aware of him, God, the Holy Spirit, who has filled them, whose primary job is to make Jesus present on earth as he is in heaven. Jesus, who is the perfect embodiment and the icon of God, the father. So the disciples are more aware here of the reality of the triune God as he takes up residence in their soul and becomes the greatest weight and the greatest worth that they know and impresses upon them the worth they are to him. Do you know what you are worth to God? Do you know the worth that he sees in you? Because our gospel reading tells us Acts 2, the wine is a symbol of the spirit, the new wine that the disciples are filled with in our gospel reading from John chapter two, wine is also a symbol of Jesus's blood. Here, Jesus changes uh, between 120 to 180 gallons of water into wine. Do you know how many bottles that is? It's about 10 bottles in a gallon. It's a lot of wine. It's an amazing amount of wine, 1,200 to 1,800 bottles of wine. So why so much wine? Because again, the emphasis is upon entirety. God gave everything, that of incalculable worth, his only son of imaginable cost, unimaginable. Jesus' blood, in other words, is enough for everyone. Blood is enough for you to forgive you, to restore you to a right relationship with God so that God might fill you with himself and give you this new power to love, obey, follow, and delight in him as the greatest worth that you had ever known or will ever know. And so if you are a Christian, if you trust in Christ, 
as God, Savior, and Lord, and have been baptized into his name, you are filled with new wine. It's the ultimate wine of the life of God, which is why Paul elsewhere in the New Testament says, do not quench the spirit. He says, don't get drunk on wine, but be filled with the spirit because present sufferings always require something to endure. Everyone turns to some wine when they hurt. Paul says, do not quench the spirit in you with other wines. Listen to him and follow him and speak even of him. Allow him to change your speak. Paul says elsewhere, keep in step with the spirit as he leads you so that you delight in him and in the life he gives you now as you look forward in hope to the life that you will have in the world to come, which cannot be compared with your present sufferings. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that we would know you even as you are known here in this passage on the original day of Pentecost. We pray that you would pour out your spirit upon us, even as we pray each and every week, and that you would do so in and through your word as it's read and preached, and in and through the sacraments, even as we come to the sacrament of your table. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.